Well, today I want to look at a passage with you that has been challenging to me in Malawi. And uh, one of the things that I often think about uh, as we come back here um, is how, um, how much the basic struggles of people are the same, regardless of all the differences of culture and language and uh, the way people live in Africa uh, when it really comes down to what's going on inside of a person and what, how people live. Uh, so much of that is the same. Um, and this uh, passage first arrested my attention um, in my, uh, as I was reading through it in Malawi and then coming back here, um, had been meditating on it some more um, and thought, you know, I'm, this would be a great passage to preach on. Um, but the universality of that also has struck me. Um, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, a familiar passage there. And it's a passage that talks about how we respond to conflict. That's a common theme, again, throughout the world. People wrong each other all around the world. And that takes different forms in Africa than it does in the U.S. Um, but that's part of human nature. Um, we constantly are, are finding ourselves on the receiving ends of other people's offenses and doing it to each other as well. And this passage has challenged my own thinking a lot in how I respond to that. I want to be able to walk through that with you today and see what we learn from the teachings of Christ about this. Now, we're familiar with Matthew 5. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a familiar passage, I think, to all of you. But I just want to spend a few minutes giving a bit of an overview and putting this in its context so we can understand it. Um, this is a section in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus is calling people, his listeners, to a greater righteousness. Um, you see in uh, chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus makes a striking statement to his hearers. He says, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that caught people's attention because the scribes and Pharisees were the most righteous people they could imagine, and they couldn't imagine anyone being more righteous than them. And uh, yet Jesus, in the rest of this chapter, describes what that greater righteousness would look like. And so he gives quite a few examples of that. Um, Six, in fact. Um, And if you have the headers in your Bible, you may see them broken down by section throughout the rest of chapter 5. Starting in verse 21, he talks about what that greater righteousness looks like with relation to anger. And then oaths. um, Sorry, lust, divorce, then oaths, retaliation, and then the last section is about love for your enemies. Um, And each one of those follows a a format we call an antithesis or a contrast, where he starts by saying, you have heard this, but I say that. And so he contrasts something that the scribes and Pharisees had been teaching with what he himself, Christ, was teaching. Now what's interesting about that is what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching each time was something from the Old Testament. It was something from the Mosaic Law. Um, But it was something that had been changed or distorted or misapplied by the Pharisees. And so Jesus, being the authority himself, uh, was able to add his own authority behind what he was going to teach to correct that and really explain what the true intention was behind those original Old Testament commands. Um, Jesus always surprised people, as we saw in Luke 4.36, that he spoke with authority. None of the Pharisees did that. They always had to go back to the authority of of Moses. They had to go back to the, the Old Testament law. Um, and yet, what they had also done is, is twist those, and we'll see a little bit of that today. Um, 
as we look at these these six contrasts too, I, I also believe that the last one, love your enemies, really encapsulates a lot of what we see in the first ones as well. Um, but the one we're going to look at today is the fifth of number six on retaliation. We're going to be looking at verses 38 through 42. So if you're not already there, please look at Matthew 5, 38 through 42. I'm just going to read that for us now. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, if you're taking notes, we'll see the first thing that Jesus does is really renews the command here. Um, and that's in verse 38 and the beginning of verse 39. Um, he starts by saying, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was the ancient law. Verse 21 calls those the quotations, the ancients, the quotations of the ancients. Um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was something that God had said to the Israelites in the Old Testament. We see it in Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, Deuteronomy 19.21, three times. Um, Each of those times was in the context of civil instruction to the Israelites. This was meant to guide how the Israelites were to function as a government under God's authority. The purpose for this command, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, was to do two things. Um, It was, one way, it was meant to deter crime, to prevent people from continuing to carry out evil. Um, And then secondly, it was meant to make sure that the punishment met the crime, that it matched up with the uh, extent of the crime. Um, We have a natural tendency sometimes to escalate things. I think about this. I think about when I was a boy growing up in Washington State, uh, my brother and another friend and I were all playing down on the creek bed one time, and um, some other boys about our age went across the bridge over top of us and started shouting at us, insulting us. Well, naturally, we wanted to one-up them, so we started insulting them back. And then one of them spit off the bridge on me. Well, that made us really angry, so we turned around and stormed through the woods up, up the hill and grabbed as many of these chestnuts as we could find and started pelting them with it. And then one of them called his big brother out, and I don't know where it would have ended, but uh, eventually an adult came and <laughs> stopped us. But at the time, I remember thinking the only way that this is going to stop is we have to one-up them so much that they could never possibly retaliate. If we can get our hands on a fighter jet or a nuclear weapon, then that will finally be the end of it. Um, And that just reveals that tendency to retaliate. Um, We see a biblical example of that in Genesis chapter 4. The grandson of Cain, Lamech, was boasting about the way he would finish the argument. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He was one to overcompensate and, and finish uh, the debate without any further question. Um, but this command, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is meant to prevent that. It was meant to prevent the punishment for a crime from being excessive, from uh, overwhelming um, what, the, what the crime was. But it's also important to recognize that um, in the context of all of these commands, that they were always carried out by either judges or a large representative group of citizens. It wasn't ever just 
an individual carrying this out. And what we see when we get to Jesus' day was that the Pharisees had misapplied that principle in a few different ways. First, they were taking these civil laws that were meant to be applied in more of a a court setting, and they were applying it on a personal level. Um, We also would see that they ignored other commands that were also in the Old Testament that helped to govern how those sorts of relationships would work. Um, Even in the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded not to hold grudges. Um, In fact, Leviticus 19.18 explicitly says not to take judgment into your own hands. Of course, the the Pharisees had been doing that. Um, And it also overlooked the commands uh, and and the declarations that God is judge. Well, by Jesus' day, all of those uh, distortions had combined to make a teaching that said that it's acceptable to take things into your own hands. That when somebody wrongs you, that you have an obligation to wrong them back. That what they do to you, you should do something back to them. As long as it's not exceeding the offense, when somebody um, hurts you, you should hurt them back. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it turned into this complicated system where if it wasn't really advantageous for you to literally knock their tooth out, you could find the value of that tooth and get some monetary compensation for the harm that was done to you. Well, Jesus comes in and he refocuses this law. Um, So in 39a, he puts the focus back where it should have been and says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Again, this is his antithesis, his contrast to what the Pharisees were teaching. He says, this is what we should understand instead. Now, this is an interesting statement, and it's been misunderstood a lot. Um, A lot of extreme ideas have been built on this statement, do not resist the one who is evil. One commentator said this is more misunderstood than any other part of the Sermon on the Mount. And really, there's a warning for us about the danger of studying any passage of Scripture in isolation from the rest of the Word of God. That's usually how these ideas have come up, is that people will study a few verses like this uh, by themselves and not see what the rest of Scripture has to say about it. One of the extreme views that's come from this, historically, has been absolute pacifism, um, which would be prohibition of any force of any kind on any level in any part of society. Um, Someone might say Christ's way is not to resist evil in any way by anyone. Um, And so you would hear people who would say Christians shouldn't join the military uh, or law enforcement or be part of the court judgments. Um, They shouldn't serve as part of jury duty. Um, Those institutions all resist evil, so Christians shouldn't be part of that. Um, some would even say, go as far as to say those institutions shouldn't even exist. Um, one famous proponent of that was Leo Tolstoy, the author of War and Peace. He wrote, Christ totally forbids the human institution of any law court because they resist evil and even return evil for evil. And he applied that same principle to the army and the police. Um, following Tolstoy was actually Gandhi. Gandhi followed his writings and took it to uh, an even further extreme of complete pacifism. Um, And there's even a a funny, humorous example from Martin Luther who wrote about a man, that crazy saint, he calls him, who refused to kill the lice that were nibbling at his head because he thought that that would be resisting evil, the evil that they were doing to him. Um, Now, I don't think that's what this passage is teaching. Ultimately, it's a matter of conscience, but I don't believe that there's anything here that forbids Christians from serving in the military or law enforcement or in the legal judicial system. Um, There's another extreme that we've seen from this historically, and that says, well, Jesus didn't actually mean us to follow this. This is an ideal. It's put out there just to make us hope for for the kingdom to come. 
but we can never actually reach this. So we just kind of have to look at that as a distance and see it as an exclamation point in the margin between the world now and the kingdom not yet to come. So I don't believe that's the case either. I think these commands are for us to obey, and we're going to talk about how we do that in just a few minutes. Um, But how do we understand this command to not resist the one who is evil? Well, I think, again, looking at the whole of Scripture, what we understand about the restraint of evil and and the way that that works, um, first of all, we recognize that the punishment of evil ultimately belongs to God. God is the one who punishes evil and judges evil. Um, He says, vengeance is mine, and the Lord will judge his people, and things like that. Again, Deuteronomy 32, uh, Hebrews 10, Romans 12, we see a lot of those uh, statements where God is ultimately the one who punishes evil. He's the righteous judge. Retribution by itself isn't a bad thing, but it's ultimately God's responsibility. Now, secondly, we recognize that God also delegates some of that responsibility to people, that he appoints government authorities. We saw some of that in the passage that Clint read from 1 Peter chapter 2, um, that God entrusts uh, authorities in government, in the church even, and gives them a duty to restrain evil uh, in society to some degree. Um, and even a force to do that. We saw. We also see 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. God sent kings and governors and other institutions of authority for the punishment of evildoers. Um, Romans 13, 4. Government bears a sword. It's a minister of God, an avenger to bring wrath on the one who that bears evil. Um, but then the last thing we see taught throughout the rest of Scripture as well is that God calls individuals not to take personal justice into their own hands. That's not just a New Testament thing. That's also in the Old Testament. We see quite a few times that the Old Testament says the same thing. For example, Proverbs twenty four twenty nine: Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Um, or Proverbs twenty five twenty one: If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. We know that because it's quoted in Romans 12 as well. We see these commands even in the Old Testament that when someone does evil to us, personally, as individuals, um, that uh, we don't need to take justice on them, that we don't need to get revenge towards them, that we don't need to retaliate against them. And that's really the focus here. This passage, like the rest in chapter 5, is focused on individuals, not on society as a whole. It's not trying to define the role of government. Other passages do that. But this is talking about the individual disciple, the individual follower of Christ, and how we respond when other individuals sin against us, harm us, wrong us, offend us. And Jesus gives uh, a a guideline of what we do there um, in this statement, don't resist an evil person. Um, And what does that mean? Well, resist is to set against or to oppose. Um, And so um, Jesus is saying not to do that. Uh, which means when someone harms us personally, that we shouldn't respond with anger or spite or resentment or revenge. Rather than setting ourselves against them, we do the opposite, which is be towards them. Rather than being opposed to them, we should be for them, even when they're an enemy. Um, Rather than uh, trying to to fight back against an enemy and uh, push back against them, we're trying to do what helps them, what blesses them, what serves them. Um, And that really leads into the the last antithesis in beginning of verse 43 and 44. 
to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, we see that exemplified in this passage as well. Um, well, what does it look like to not resist an evil person? That's what the rest of this section is about. It gives examples. Um, so the rest of uh, verses 39 through 42 illustrate uh, what does it look like to not um, retaliate, to not resist an evil person. Um, and so again, the outline here is, these are four rights that we see in this remaining section. Four rights that the Christian can surrender for the sake of love. Now, these are all things that every Christian, every one of us, has the option of being able to, to give up, to put aside for the sake of love and for the glory of God. Um, the first one is dignity. We see that in the rest of verse 39. It says, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now in Jesus' day, just like today, if someone slaps you on the cheek, the issue isn't so much the, the injury, it's the offense of it, right? It's the insult of it. Um, I don't know when the last time was that uh, uh, any of us have gotten slapped in the face, but if it's happened to you, you probably remember it very clearly. It's something that is humiliating, uh, and it gets your attention. Um, there would be situations in, in Jesus' time when that would happen um, to uh, an employee, a slave, um, even sometimes the evangelists, um, but it could also happen in other relationships. But in any case, it was an insult, just like it is today. Um, and the idea of being slapped on the right cheek could mean something because for a right-handed person to slap you on the right cheek, they have to use the back of their hand, which would be more offensive than using the palm of their hand. Well, think about your natural response to that. How would you respond if somebody came and slapped you on the face? Maybe you'll slap them right back. Maybe you don't do anything, but you are thinking about ways to get back. You start plotting a way to get even with them. Um, Actually, under the Jewish law um, that the Pharisees were teaching, you could start calculating what your reparations could be, how much money you could take them to court for for the assault that they have just done to you. But what does Christ call us to do here? Turn the other cheek. Now, when you think about that, how does that make any sense? Right? How does that make any sense? This person just shamed me, insulted me, and I'm going to turn the other cheek to them? How does that protect me? How does that help me? But what we have to recognize is that behind each of these commands, there has to be a change of heart. You can't follow these commands without a change of heart. And the change of heart here is that you're not thinking about, how do I protect myself? How do I take care of myself in this situation? What do I do to defend myself? But rather, what's best for that person? This one who just slapped me. This person who just offended me, who just uh, embarrassed me. How do I serve them? First Corinthians 13, describing love, says a lot of things similar to this too. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It bears all things. It endures all things. It's willing to turn the other cheek. Spurgeon made a shocking statement about this verse. He says, we are to be as the anvil when bad men are the hammers. Now, you may not get slapped physically very often, but there are a lot of other ways that people may also uh, assault your dignity. Um, an insult, some demeaning comment, someone saying something that tears you down, maybe 
publicly, maybe on social media. And yet, Christians, the disciples of Christ, have the opportunity to give up that dignity for the sake of love and the glory of God. Proverbs 19.11 says, It's a man's glory to overlook an offense. We have lots of opportunities to overlook offenses that are done to us. When somebody does something to us, we can often choose to overlook it. And rather than defending our dignity, we can use our energy, instead of fighting back, use that energy to find ways to be a blessing to our opponent, to the one who has set themselves against us. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that Christians remain silent about every wrong that is done. There are some cases of abuse or of assault um, that need to be brought to the authorities, they need to be brought to uh, the attention of the God-appointed authorities who will deal with those things. Um, sometimes it's not loving to allow someone to continue to harm others continually. Um, it's not loving to them as that, the person who's doing those things. And it's not loving to our neighbors to allow them to go unchecked. Um, so this doesn't mean that we always completely overlook that. But what it does mean is that the attitude in our heart should be one of love. Right? That even if we end up having to call the police on somebody, um, that we don't do it because we hate them. We do it because we believe that that's really going to be what's best for them. We believe that that's going to be what, what serves them best, is going to be what helps uh, the, uh, ultimately um, them to be um, best cared for. But so many other times, there are situations that aren't that extreme, where we're offended, where people are assaulting our dignity, people are insulting us, and we have opportunities to just overlook it. We can be those people who offenses just roll right off of, and maybe people are going to come up to us and say, maybe you didn't hear me. Did you hear what I said about you? Because they're so surprised that you didn't react when they expected you to react. Turning the other cheek, it actually is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of great strength. It requires a lot of love and care for the other person to be able to control ourselves, uh, to be able to uh, care for the other person so much that we choose not to retaliate. And where do we see that exemplified? Well, we see it in Christ. I think about the way that, that Christ handled himself. Again, in the scripture reading this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, Christ, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ turned the other cheek. He didn't fight back. He didn't retaliate. I think another great example of that is in Matthew 26, um, when he is in the garden and, and, and about to be captured. And this is... Peter lops off the man's ear and Jesus says, put your sword away. Do you not think, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus had at his call 36,000 angels, angel soldiers available at any time to defend him, to protect him, right? You think about how if you had the ability to fight back with incredible force against someone who offended you, would you use it? Jesus did, and he chose not to. He chose not to summon those angels. And you think about his entire life, of all the offenses that he endured, of all of the the ways that people uh, insulted him, and uh, yet he could have called those angels to defend him, but he didn't. He chose to let it roll right off of him. Um, He laid aside the power to defend himself for the sake of what glorified the Father. And that's what we're called to as well. Well, we see a second right that the Christian can surrender for the sake of love. Security. 
verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, again, in Jesus' day, they would wear a few different garments. You'd have your shirt was your undergarment, and then your cloak was your outer garment. Um, And if you went bankrupt and lost everything, you could literally lose your shirt. Uh, The courts could demand your shirt in repayment of the debt. Um, But the Law of Moses also had a stipulation to protect poor people in that situation and said that every night you had to be given your cloak back so that you wouldn't freeze to death. Because your cloak often worked as your blanket, especially if you're homeless. If you're sleeping out in a field, you could at least wrap your cloak around yourself to stay warm, to stay alive. And so even if they claimed your cloak as payment of a debt, they couldn't keep it overnight. They had to every night find you and give it back to you. So usually they wouldn't even bother trying to take it from you. The cloak was not just an article of clothing. It was something that literally kept you alive. It was a form of protection. It was something that kept you secure. Now... Imagine this situation. Imagine somebody wrongly suing you and taking everything. And your response would be what? Maybe fight back? Maybe anger? Demand what's right? Listen, look at what Jesus calls us to here. Look at his command here. Leave your cloak with him too. Why would anybody do that? Why would you do that? If you've got a law that's protecting you to keep your cloak, and now you say, you know what? Why don't you go ahead and take this too? How does that make any sense, right? That just seems so bizarre. But what helps us understand it a little bit more as we look at this is, remember, what's in view is a dispute. This isn't a a, a lawsuit between a person and a major corporation, but between an individual and an individual, right? This is two people, right? There's some sort of substance issue here. There's something about... You know, money, there's something about possessions here. Um, And the point here is that there may be situations in which giving that cloak up may be the thing that wins the relationship back. It may be the thing that restores the relationship with that person. Um, But again, this requires a transformed heart. This requires a heart that says, I'm willing to give up my own security for the sake of restoration to this person. Right? Love does not seek its own. We see earlier on in chapter 5, Jesus says in verse 25, when someone's taking you to court, make friends with them quickly. Right? And this is, I believe, is something similar to that. That there's a possibility, in some cases, that you could, by giving up even more than you have to, of becoming friends with that person who right now is your enemy. Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, this isn't always possible, but there are some situations where it may be possible that by giving up our rights, we can end up winning the friendship back with somebody who we've been ostracized from. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, um, in talking about lawsuits between believers and how that's shameful, um, Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? That in some situations... It may just be better to go ahead and and lose, even though you're right. That requires a humility, too, to look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. To be able to give up what you could legally cling to as your right and say, I'll give that up for the sake of restoration to this brother. And ultimately, it requires a supreme trust in God's ability to protect us, 
right? If we're going to give up the things that keep us secure and keep us safe, we need to trust that God is the one who keeps us safe. There was an example of this. One time I had a friend who uh, came to me one time. We were both uh, in a Bible study together, and uh, he said, hey, that's my shirt. <laughs> kind of laughed at first, and he's like, no, no, seriously, you're wearing my shirt. What are you talking about? He's like, no, I had that same shirt, and it's, it, I can't find it. It's gone. And it, I, that's it. You're wearing it. Okay, that's fine. You know, kind of laughed it off. But then the next time I saw him, he brought it up again. Next time I wore that shirt, he said, hey, there, you're wearing my shirt again. I said, that doesn't make any sense. He said, no, no. You, I think what happened, I've been thinking about this. I think what happened is we went to so-and-so's house together, and, and I was wearing that shirt, and I probably took it off because I got hot, and then you probably put it on because you thought it was yours, and, and you've been wearing my shirt ever since. Now, I knew he was wrong. I remember buying that shirt. I remember the store I bought it from. I knew that it was my shirt. And I don't, I think it would be completely unlikely that I would ever go to someone's house with no shirt and come back out with someone else's shirt on and somehow be okay with that. But he kept bringing it up. And so I went out and I bought him the same shirt. And I gave it to him in the packaging and said, here you go. This is for you. Just in case. I did. Here's here's a shirt for you. Here's your shirt. Now, I lost the price of the shirt, but I kept him as a friend. But before you think too highly of me in that situation, I'll tell you what was so difficult to do right there. By giving him that shirt, I was acknowledging that I may have been wrong. And I knew I was right. I wasn't wrong. I knew that he was crazy, that I was the one who was right in this argument. And by giving him this shirt, I had to, I had to give all that up. And now he's going to think that he was right all along, that maybe I really was a thief. Um, that's what makes this so difficult for us. We want to hold on to those things that keep us safe. Um, maybe it's not tangible things. Maybe it's something like our reputation that makes us feel safe, our position, um, our retirement, our, our home, our investments. What are those things that we hold on to that give us that sense of security, of safety, of, of confidence for the future? And we need to ask ourselves, from Jesus' statement here, are we willing to give those things up for the sake of love for our brothers and sisters, if it's possible to be able to restore a broken relationship by giving some of that up, will we do it? Will we do it? If it glorifies God, will we give that up? There's a third right that we as Christians can surrender for the sake of love in this passage. And it's freedom. We see that in verse 41. Jesus says, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, the background here is this was a practice that was introduced by the Persians originally and then borrowed and carried on to the Romans of Jesus' day. What would happen is the soldiers um, would often be marching through towns and um, carrying their heavy baggage, feeling the weight of that, uh, and they could enlist a civilian to help them. They could grab someone who was <laughs> going about their business and force them to carry their bag, their burden, for one Roman mile. Now the law restricted it to one mile so that it wasn't abused. They could also do the same if they were coming up to a a, a treacherous part of the road. Maybe there's a part of the road that often has bandits in it and so they're going through this narrow pass. They could grab some Jewish citizens and pull them in, put them at the front of the, the, the procession and have them lead the way for that one mile stretch of that. Now you can imagine how the natural response would be for that. 
wait, this isn't what I signed up for. I'm on my way to work right now. You can't grab me and pull me away from this. I'm trying to get something done right here. You know, I've got plans for today. And not only do you have to walk a mile with them, once you're done, you're going to have to turn around and walk them another mile back to get back to where you started from. And to top it all off, you're assisting. You're aiding and abetting the enemy, the occupiers. The Romans were hated by the Jews. So this was something that you can imagine the Jews absolutely abhorred. When they saw the Roman army coming, they'd scatter. They'd get as far away from the roads as they can. And those poor, unlucky souls who got grabbed and pulled into that were pitied by everyone. Um, Everyone felt sympathetic towards them. And yet, look what Christ calls us to do. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Once again, what's in the heart of a person who does that? There's a willingness to surrender your time. You're giving up your freedom. You're giving up what you could be doing with that time. But there also has to be this trust in God's control over the circumstances. Right? Okay, I'm going to be late. This is is taking a good portion of my morning away from me. Um, And yet to be able to go an extra mile, make it two miles. Now I'm walking back another two miles. This is four miles. This is, you know, the better part of an hour now that I've just sacrificed for the sake of helping the enemies here. You can really only do that when you see God's sovereignty over this whole circumstance. Some modern examples of that. This kind of thing can happen in a workplace. Sometimes you may be asked to do more than than you expected to. Um, I think it can happen in the church. It can sometimes happen when you sign up for a, a, a one role in the church and it ends up expanding. It snowballs. It becomes bigger and more. You end up doing more than you signed up for. Um, it can happen at home when you end up thinking you're going to be getting home and being able to put your feet up and rest and relax and all of a sudden there are all these demands with the kids or the plumbing or something that's not working the way you expect it to um, where our freedom gets pushed up against. Um, this isn't what I signed up for. I have other plans. I've got something else I want to do. This is infringing on my freedom. And yet what Christ is calling us to do here is to be willing to even give up our freedoms for the sake of love for others and to the glory of God. There's a great example of this modeled in Christ himself in Mark chapter 6. Mark 6, 31 and 32. Um, you can turn there if you want. So there have been a, it's been a busy season of ministry. Um, John the Baptist... Uh, um, Jesus has sent out the, the, um, some of the disciples and they've recently come back and been telling him all about the ministry that they've done. Uh, and then in verses 31 and 32, Jesus says to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they're going to get some time by themselves, but then look at verse 33. Now many, the crowds saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So Jesus and the disciples are going across the lake to a nice, quiet, peaceful place so they can finally rest because they haven't even had time to eat. But as soon as they get there to the other side, verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Jesus finds a huge crowd waiting for him again, but look at his response. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Instead of demanding his right to rest, to, to privacy, instead of uh, demanding, hey, I've got, I've got freedom to, to be left alone for a little while, 
Jesus felt compassion for all these people and began to start serving them again. And then the next thing that happens, starting in verse 35, is he feeds the 5,000, right? But this example, again, is just amazing to see Jesus himself modeling this. Um, he could have done so much less. Did he have the right to ask for rest, for a time to have a break, to have some food? Sure. But there was an opportunity to give up those rights, to give up his, his freedom for the sake of serving others and glorifying God. And he did. And the disciples saw that and learned from it. We want to defend our right to rest, to work, to do our own thing, to control our time. Um, but we have opportunities to give those up for the sake of love. There's one more right we see here in this passage. Another right, the last right, that the Christian can surrender for the sake of love is our possessions. Verse 42, we can give up our possessions. Jesus says again, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, the meaning there is similar to today. Not much of a cultural gap there. You've got two groups of people. You've got beggars who are asking for money and aren't going to give it back. And you've got borrowers who are going to ask you for money and might give it back. Now, what's the natural response when someone comes to you asking for money? Sometimes they'll ask you and you just would say no, right? Um, or maybe a little something to make them go away. Um, sometimes if you know this person always is asking people for money, they're always wanting to borrow things, you might do what Jesus alludes to here. You avoid them, right? You avoid them. You turn away from them. You don't uh, want to go towards them. You, you, you turn away from them. And ASB translates, refuse that way. Um, you see them from a distance and think, hey, let's go this way instead. Um, why do we do that? Well, we think about all the things that we need to use that money for. Right? We've got legitimate expenses. We've got real needs of our own family and household. And what's going to happen to us if we give this away? What happens if we end up in a, in a tough situation next week? We might be in need ourselves. Um, but also, sometimes, withholding possessions can lead to withholding fellowship. It starts to affect our relationships, right? Uh, if you're starting to avoid certain people because they are in need, it can start to harm your fellowship with them. Look what Jesus calls us to hear. He says to give. He says not to refuse, not to turn away. And this passage is really the, the thing that caught my attention first, uh, this particular verse, uh, because we live in an incredibly poor country in Africa. We're constantly surrounded by beggars. I have people come up to my gate and knock on the gate asking for money, asking for help, asking for a job um, at least once a week. Um, every, there's some major stoplights. There are only a couple stoplights in our town that actually work so, but all those ones have somebody at every corner asking for something. Um, and does this mean that we need to give to everyone who asks us? I've met people who say it does. I've met people who would take this passage and say that this means that anytime somebody asks you for money, you have to give it to them. Um, and so they would give a small amount to any person who asks. Um, but again, looking at it along with these other ones, I would say that what we whether we give or not, really is determined by what's most loving for them. Right? It's governed by love, just like these other ones. Um, there are situations, there are times when it's actually not helpful to give to somebody who asks of you. It's not loving to give 
than what they're asking for. Um, we had an example with one of those guys at the intersection asking for money who was a blind man. We ended up finding out he wasn't blind. <laughs> Rachel reached up to turn the, sun, the seat belt, uh, to grab the seat belt it had locked, and the man jumped back because she saw, he saw her hand moving towards him and thought that she was going to hit him or something. Um, or just a, a few weeks before we left Malawi, before we came here, we had a, a boy come to our church. And I've seen this boy around town. He's a street boy. I know him. Um, he's, I've given him money before. He, he's told me he needed it for school. And so I've helped him a couple times before. Um, and I've seen him a lot of times at restaurants asking for, for money. Um, but he came to our church. He spent a Sunday at our church, fellowshiped with us, came to our, our care group afterwards. Um, and uh, afterwards he asked a friend of mine for a Bible. And so he gave him a Bible in Chichewa one of the local languages. Um, well, the next Sunday, that boy came to my house, and he asked me for a Bible. And I said, wait, I know my friend just gave you a Bible. <laughs> he said, yeah, but that was a Chichewa Bible. I want an English Bible. I said, I'm not sure. You know, is this really going to help you? you, know, are you where, where's the other Bible? No, no, it's still at home, but I want to have them both to read them side by side. And, and so I um, thought about it. I ended up giving him an English Bible. Um, an hour later, a friend of mine from our church called me and said, hey, I met this boy. He's selling a Bible in the parking lot. It has the church's name stamped on it. Um, and what that just confirmed for me is it wouldn't, do me any, it wouldn't be loving for me to continue to give this boy anything. Now that I know his character, now that I know what his lifestyle is and what he's been doing, um, this wouldn't be helpful. But it also doesn't mean that I completely need to cut off my relationship with him. As I continue to see him, I want to keep talking to him. I want to continue to develop that relationship there. Um, so that I can point him to the God of that Bible, um, even if he's not wanting to, to keep the Bible itself. Um, there are situations where it's not always loving to give to someone who asks. Um, in fact, we think of the, the command to the Thessalonians not to help the person who is refusing to work, right? that it's actually a command that the church shouldn't help an unwilling person. Um, but there are a lot of times where there are legitimate needs, Right? And we can't excuse ourselves in those situations. Again, love often would have us give or, or even just give the benefit of the doubt, um, even err on the side of generosity. Um, we were just talking last night with some guys. Galatians 6.10 is a passage that challenges my thinking on this. So then, well, we have opportunity. Let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Particularly, we need to meet the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters within the church. James 2, if a brother and sister lacks clothes and daily food, it's not enough to just say be warm and be filled when you've got the means to help feed them. In fact, that calls into question the validity of your own faith. We don't always know if it's legitimate, right? So we need to find out, do the best we can to find out. Um, and again, in doubt, err on the side of generosity. Um, but again, to do that, you have to have a heart it's not possessive, right? You need to have a transformed heart that sees everything you have as God's and sees you as a steward of those things. All those resources are not ours, they're his. And we need to have a heart that trusts God's provision, that he's going to provide our daily bread for tomorrow, that he's going to continue to care for us each day. Examples again would be Luke 10, the Good Samaritan, right? Jesus gives that parable to describe what a neighbor does, all right? What, who is your neighbor? Um, this man bandaged the wounds of, this, of the Samaritan, uh, um, of, the, of the wounded man, rather. Um, brought him to an inn, paid his expenses. But the very first thing he did was he showed compassion to him. Right? It really started from that heart of love for this person. 
Well, in conclusion, just a few thoughts of application. Again, we've got these four rights we see here. Dignity, security, freedom, and possessions. And Christ is calling us to be willing to give up those, right? To surrender those rights um, for the sake of love, for the glory of God, out of love for our enemies. Um, Which of those is the hardest for you? Which of those are the ones that you tend to hold on to the most? Which are the ones that are difficult to to be willing to, to trust God for? To help us apply that, um, I want to ask a few questions. Who, why, how? Who does this? Who does this? Who gives up their rights like this? Well, we see God the Father does this. Um, look down at Matthew 5, 44 and 46, through 46. Jesus says again, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust that God sends rain and sun on people who don't honor him, who don't treat him the way that they should, who wrong him, who sin against him, who offend him, and yet he is continually showing grace and mercy to his enemies, and that when we love our enemies, we show ourselves to be his children. Christ does this. Christ models this perfectly. We already saw First Peter 2, that Christ didn't revile those who reviled him, who didn't threaten them. Um, And then we also see in verse 21 of that chapter, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We're called to follow in the footsteps of Christ, who suffered for righteousness' sake. Um, This isn't just something that a few heroes of the faith do. This isn't just the Corey Ten Booms and and Fox's Book of Martyrs and Nelson Mandela's who are the ones who are able to uh, absorb evil and not retaliate, but this should be all of us. This should be characteristic of everyone who follows Christ. Why? Why should we live like this? Well, it's commanded, first of all, and that should be a lot right there. should be enough, but uh, there are a couple other reasons we can see in chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. Um, it's the imitation of God. We just talked about that, verse 48. Um, we see, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, this is how God is, and we as his children want to be like him. And then if we back up right before this, we look in verses 14 through 16, um, we see another reason, another possible result of living this way, of following this standard of righteousness that Christ has set here. Um, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Um, That it may be that as we imitate God and as we uh, choose to to follow God, Christ's footsteps here, that people around us see that and come to become worshipers of God themselves. They come to uh, have saving faith in Christ. How? How do we live like this? That's, that's the, the really important question. How do we do this? Right? In fact, this whole chapter, in fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount, when you read this, the question that often pops up is, how do we do this? Because this feels impossible, Right? And that was really the point, is it was meant to do that. It was meant to make us realize the insufficiency of doing things in our own strength. It was meant to show the Pharisees that their system of self-righteousness was never enough. In fact, what the Pharisees had done with all of these Old Testament commands that they're quoting is they had actually scaled them down. They'd, they'd reduced them to a more manageable size, something that they could fulfill, 
right? They had taken the law of God and, and reduced it to make it something that they could do without God's help. Um, Christ brings it back to where it was supposed to be and puts it back into a place where we say, I can't do this on my own. And that's entirely true. No one can follow these commands without the saving power of the gospel, without having that new heart, without being saved. Um, We can't do it also without that humble dependence on God, day by day. We need his grace to be able to follow this, to be these kinds of people who give rather than take, who bless rather than curse, who do good to those who persecute us. That is not the natural state of human beings, um, but that is who God is, and as we rely on him to work through us and work his grace within us, that's what comes out. Um, It requires us to think differently. We need to think about ourselves that way, as people who depend on God. We need to think about ourselves as people who are woefully inadequate of doing this. We need to not see ourselves as righteous in our own strength and in our own doing. We need to see ourselves as people who could, who could never please God in our, in our own strength, um, but who entirely need to depend on that alien righteousness. It changes how we think about God. We need to think about God as the one who provides for us. I've said that several times. In each of these situations, the only way we can surrender those rights is if we trust that God is the one who's going to take care of us. If we believe that we need to defend ourselves, we're going to hold on to those things. But if we recognize that God is our defender, we will let go of those things. There's so many psalms about that that just talk about God defending us. Um, Here are just a couple. Um, Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Nehemiah 9, verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heavens, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in them, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Think of Matthew 6, Jesus saying that God provides for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Won't he also provide for us? We need to have that confidence that God is our provider and our protector, that we don't need to try to defend and protect ourselves because he does. Um, And it also changes how we think about others. Um, As we think about others, we should be asking, not how do I get back at them? Not how do I I revenge myself on them? Why were they doing that horrible thing to me? But rather, how do I honor them? How do I serve them? How do I love them? How do I bless them? Right? That's the mind that uh, needs to be, we need to have to be able to follow this. Um, What's the most God-honoring way to treat this person who's attacking me? who's hurting me, who's insulting me. How can I treat them with the kind of love that Christ has shown me? Romans 12, 17 through 21. I've alluded to this passage several times, but let me just read it again in, uh, in its entirety. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me go ahead and close this in a word of prayer here. 
God in heaven, we acknowledge that you are a merciful and gracious God and that you have shown incredible mercy to us while we were your enemies. Lord, we hated you. We uh, defied you. Lord, while we sinned against you and committed all kinds of offenses against you, Lord, you showed us incredible favor and mercy, Lord, uh, in creating us and showing your patience and in giving us the breath of life and letting us live long enough that we might hear of you, Lord, that we might be able to, to know something of you, but so much more in, in sending your Son, Lord. You've given us so much that we could never hope to deserve. God, uh, you perfectly exemplify what it means to love your enemies because we were your enemies, and now we are able to, to follow as your children uh, and exemplify that as well. Lord, what Christ calls us to here is incredibly challenging. Lord, these are difficult, difficult commands for us. And I pray that as we continue to meditate on all that this calls and requires of us, uh, that you would increase our faith, help us to be able to trust you as a God who is able uh, to make it possible for us to, to do these things. Lord, help us to be able to trust that you will provide for us. Lord, help us to see the opportunities we have around us uh, as we are wronged and, and sinned against and uh, mistreated and insulted by others uh, as opportunities to glorify your name. Lord, not to try to focus on ourselves and figure out how to protect ourselves, but to see how can we uh, forsake the rights and the, the uh, things that we would want to protect, Lord, and be able to entrust ourselves to you just as Christ himself did and be able to uh, not overcome not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Lord, thank you that you are our protector, that you are our defense, that you are our provider, and that we can acknowledge that and demonstrate that uh, as we are wronged by people around us. Lord, may we be a light to the world around us too, so that others may come to worship you as well. We commit this day to you, Lord, and all it holds. In Jesus' name, amen.